Good afternoon and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. This is Pat Leahy sitting in for the final time this summer for the vacationing Hugh Linehan. I'm joined by our political team of Harry McGee and Sarah Barden. Good morning and thank you for joining. There's a bit of an end-of-term feeling I discern around Leinster House this week. There's a, there was a crowded cabinet agenda yesterday. There's We see the Dáil schedule suggests uh, quite an acceleration of parliamentary business. Dáil sitting late, late, into, late into the night and late into the week, not adjourning until Friday. Um, I, I, I discern a slightly giddy or even manic sense uh, uh, around the place. Am I alone in this? No, no not um, really. If you look at uh, what's happening in the Dáil this week, there I totted up the number of bills that are coming before the houses, the two houses of the Oireachtas plus the committees, and there are 16 in total. And when you consider that a total of 14 bills have been enacted since the start of the year, which is a very low uh, strike rate, you can see that there is a lot of catching up to do. It's a little bit like students coming to the end of year and realising, oh, oh, the exams are only a week away. I'd better start cramming. It's a week of cramming for our parliamentarians and the government in particular, trying uh, to uh, get uh, as much done in the last week uh, to justify their existence uh, in the the past year. There's a lot to do. Uh, There are only two cabinet meetings, I think, after this week, and then there's a a two-month recess where very little will be done. And I think Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach in particular, uh, who has had a very short run in until now, um, is kind of keen just to try to make some kind of mark or some kind of impression uh, before the summer recess happens. Sarah, I have some experience of cramming in the dim and distant past, and of course, what it uh, bears witness to more than anything is indolence during the rest of uh, the rest of term, and in a sense, this burst of industry uh, in the dying days of this dull term only emphasises the extent to which parliamentary and government and political business has slowed down uh, this year. Yeah, I think if you look back, it's been an incredibly long year, um, but little has actually happened. Um, There's been a lot of huffing and puffing, as Miriam Lord puts it in her column this week, but very little has actually been done. We've had numerous threats of collapses of the government, breaches of confidence and supply between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. We've had disputes left, right and centre between independent members of government and Fine Gael members of the government. And of course, we had the long anticipated Fine Gael leadership election throughout that year as well. So when you sit back and you take a look at kind of what has been achieved, very little has, but there is a sense of sort of manic um, giddiness as you as you put it that we're reaching the end of this year and that we've actually sort of made it to this point because for the for the uh, initial part of this government it was all about when the Taoiseach former Taoiseach Enda Kenny was leaving and who was going to replace him and we spent hours and hours discussing it and analysing when it would happen and and then we had in the midst of all of that we had um, disputes between the Independent Alliance and Fine Gael, disputes between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael over water charges and judicial appointments and the Morris McCabe controversy it, it, it was a, a barrage of 
you know, controversies and conflict. But actually, when you take a step back and look at what has actually been achieved, very little has. And that's why there has been this incredible rush to get as much legislation passed um, before the Dáil rises for the summer so that they can say, I think uh, Taoiseach uh, Leo Varadkar mentioned in the Dáil yesterday, I think it's 20 pieces of legislation will be passed by the end of um, by the end of this term. But actually, if you look at the quality of legislation, it's a lot that was carried over from the previous government, a lot of them technical bills, the one that's going through the House at present is, you know, ra- quite rapidly is the Rugby World Cup bid. The most contentious issues have been left on Leo Varadkar's desk for when he returns um, after the summer recess. That's quite correct, Pat, because there hasn't been any kind of pioneering legislation that, like we've seen in the past, and say, like, for example, the Smoking Bill or the Criminal Justice uh, Act of 2005, which is yeah, huge. Yeah, you've gone through many of the bills, Harry, and pointed out that many of them are technical bills that require, you know, little or no policy making as such. Yes, and, and, and in a way you can understand why that is, because it's not this government is not like any other government that we've experienced in the history of the state. Well, perhaps some of the inter-party governments, but that's a long time ago, uh, well before my time, even my even time. Your time, Even Harry. my time. Um, but, um, you know, we have a minority government that's relying on Fianna Fáil for support. I remember the old saying... Um, the, uh, the government proposes, the parliament disposes. And I always thought it was meaningless in the Irish context because the government proposed and that was that. Uh, the parliament didn't have any power. But that actual cliche has uh, is true now because uh, the parliament does have the capacity to dispose of any proposal that the government has. And we saw it with water charges, for example. Uh, we've seen it with the elongated rows, for example, in relation to waste charges last year, uh, which is still being played out. The government doesn't really have the power to assert its will. And no and to, to follow policies that it wants to do. So everything has to be done by deal, by fudge and by compromise. And that's part and parcel of the reason uh, why there is so little legislative activity in the House. But is that explanation sufficient, though? Uh, you, 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 it, it's absolutely correct insofar as it goes, in that the power has shifted from the executive to Parliament. But is it not the case that the reason that the legislative process has slowed down so much is that Parliament has not seized this new power and used it constructively. That's true, and I think that there are some parliamentarians who will be obstructive no matter what. They will talk about new politics, and the words new politics will form on their lips, but you know in their hearts and souls that their intent is exactly the opposite, because they have a particular agenda that they want to uh, uh, pursue. And there are some, I mean, I think the government realised early on that it was going to have to participate in this. I think Fianna Fáil has as well. But Fianna Fáil has uh, picked and chosen uh, which issues it's going to be new on or, or that it's going to, to uh, cooperate on and which it's going to oppose in the old-fashioned way. So it has been difficult for the government. But then you could you could level it to the government that in this new dispensation uh, that it has shown a distinct lack of imagination, that new politics requires new ideas and new ways of going about things. And a lot of the ways in which they have pursued uh, uh, new initiatives has been very old-fashioned. And you would have expected that we would have seen... One of the problems is that we haven't had enough legislation being instigated by departments. Ministers are not coming up with new ideas and pushing them forward. Uh, maybe it's because they're afraid that they're, good, they're, they're doomed to failure, but at the same time, are, they should at least are they try. Are afraid that the legislation or their officials are afraid that the legislation will be amended beyond recognition? 
Well, there's that too. And I think they have to realise that that's going to happen, that they are, that what they propose is going to be amended significantly before it actually sees the, the, the light of day. And we've seen five or six very good examples of that during the course of the year. But that shouldn't really stop them. I mean, at least they should say that these, these are the things that we want to do and these are the things that we're trying to do. This is the reality of the situation. Sometimes we won't be able to achieve all that we want to achieve, but at least we're setting out on, on that journey. And I don't think that we've seen enough of that, with one or two uh, exceptions. We used the uh, analogy of the student who was cramming uh, and the last week of exams after being indolent all year. There are one or two ministers who we know who've been doing their homework all year, and amongst them is Pascal Donoghue, who is a person who has loads of ideas and has been pushing the, those ideas forward all year. And that's why he's been such a signal success as a senior government minister, I would contend, in the past year. I think it's a bit of a catch-22 situation, though, when you look back at it, because it, ministers are reluctant to bring forward anything that's controversial because they know Parliament may not accept it or amend it beyond recognition, as you put it, Pat. But then there's also the situation when they do bring forward something that's controversial or, you know, perhaps not to everybody's taste, that they're left in a position where they can get no agreement from within government or they can get no agreement from Fianna Fáil. I mean, if you look at the An most... example is the legislation currently that passed through Cabinet yesterday and will come to uh, will come to the doll in the autumn on, on drink driving or amending the, uh, the, the uh, sanctions for drink driving. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's just one example. I mean, you'd look at the judicial appointment one as well as uh, what is supposed... These are supposed to be government bills, but they are causing a widespread divide within government. So with the drink driving bill, I mean, it was always going to be particularly contentious just because of the country's relationship uh, with alcohol. Um, but the extent to which it's met resistance is quite phenomenal because the proposal really is just to close a loophole that was introduced by Noel Dempsey in 2009. And it would, it would mean that every drink driver that's um, caught under the influence uh, or over the limit of alcohol, I should say, will be automatically banned from driving doesn't lower the alcohol limit as it currently stands. It, that will remain the same. It just means that any driver uh, that has uh, up to if between 51 and 80 um, of alcohol in their mm, blood, milligrams, basically, so. milligrams of alcohol in their blood, that they will now right. face automatic... <laughs> Huh? 50 to 80 pints, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 50 units. 50 units, yeah. Whatever, whatever the... Whatever, whatever the, the phraseology is, is yeah. that they will, will, will receive a ban rather than just a fine. Um, and yesterday, when it was brought to Cabinet, despite it being, you know, widely flagged that it was coming to Cabinet, it faced a significant level of opposition from up to six ministers, including the Minister yeah, you're of You were reporting Justice. on this uh, this morning. Quite extensive opposition to the bill around the Cabinet table, notwithstanding the fact that they, uh, the bill passed through Cabinet or the heads of the bill passed through Cabinet. Yeah, Minister for Justice Charlie Flanagan, uh, Minister for Rural Affairs Michael Ring, Heather Humphreys, Dennis Nocton, Joe McHugh, uh, were just some of the people that raised concerns about this, uh, th these proposals and they cited issues with rural transport. You know, if somebody goes to a pub in, the, in a rural or isolated part of the country, how do they get home if they can't get behind the car, um, but behind the wheel of a car. They also cited, you know, that the implications for that on social occlusion, and then perhaps the um, the effect that this could have on Garda resources and perhaps clogging up the court system too. Um, I thought it was quite interesting that those who supported it were primarily from urban areas and those that who. Uh, 
are objecting to it are from rural areas. If you look at just in terms of the constituencies that those who oppose it are from, that's Leash, Cavan, Monaghan, Mayo, Roscommon, um, Donegal, and then those that support it, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, Donald Francis Fitzgerald, Minister for Transport, Shane Ross, uh, Minister for Housing, O Murphy, all based in oh, Dublin Dublin's. constituencies, Minister for um, Labour, uh, R- Regina Doherty, who's from Meath East, and uh, Minister for Health, Simon Harris, who's from Wicklow. Patrick so, Donoghue was on the radio this morning saying that he absolutely supports it. Okay, so you can already see what this is an urban and rural divide and when you go to the Minister's Estate it also becomes an urban and rural divide and that stretches to the party party and there'll be discussions tonight on whether or not they'll have a free vote. Yeah, the question of a free vote, that will be discussed this evening's Fine Gael Parliamentary Party. Is this this a bit of Fine Gael giving Shane Ross some of his own medicine on the free vote question. Well, I think as Sarah was reporting, um, th- th- there's, th- it's not known whether uh, ministers of state will be bound by the, the whip as of yet, and that's the great imponderable because the mathematics in this are fascinating. We already have uh, Sinn Féin, which is committed to support uh, the legislation. We have the smaller parties like the Labour Party and the Green Party and possibly the Social Democrats also supporting. They're going to have a look at the legislation and going to get the view of the RSA. But if the RSA approves, uh, you can take it that those parties Which will support will. as well. Yeah. So uh, you, it will then come down to Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil. And if there's a free vote uh, applied in both parties, um, um, and I think the Fianna Fáil will try to, well, backbenchers in Fianna Fáil will try to press for a, for a free vote there rather I think than a whip Fáil vote. going to oppose this. Fianna Fáil are going to oppose it and Micheál Martin my understanding is has ruled out a free vote because he doesn't believe this is a matter of conscience Well yeah well then I think that it'll be very interesting to see how the mathematics of that Matter uh, of conscience for Danny Healy Ray though who believes that uh, the, in the right well, of every well, freeborn Irish man and woman to have well, three three beers Well I think, I think I, I wouldn't agree with that I, I mean I, I, one of the things I'd be interested in seeing is how many people have availed of this particular clause that, that you can get penalty points and a fine rather than a ban is it just a very small number or is it something that, that's been applied uh, very uh, frequently I wouldn't agree with the argument that was put forward by da- Danny Healy Ray but there is an argument in relation to rural pubs and the kind of the very crucial part that they play in the social life of the country and I know and you probably know from driving through the country that you every year that you drive west or south or northwards you'll see a couple of other pubs along the way that have closed down because of a lack of business I drive along the N5 uh, very frequently on my way over to Mayo and there's a pub in County Roscommon called Simpsons, uh, which is uh, uh, between Strokestown and Balahadarine. And that was open for many years and has closed in the past year and just become a, a private house. Uh, they, they just cannot uh, keep open anymore. Uh, their, their clientele are people from around the place who were relying on their own transport and they're not uh, willing to take that chance anymore. And there's also the kind of thing is about people... inevitable if you want to stop people from oh, drinking and driving that rural pubs look, will close? That's yes, the trade-off. It's a difficult it? argument, but if you look at the at the road fatality statistics from the early 1970s, the mid-1970s, at a time when there were far fewer cars on Irish roads, you're getting over 700 people per annum being killed on Irish roads and that figure has come down substantially uh, despite a growth in population and a huge growth in the number of there's, people there's, there's using twice, cars. There's twice as many cars. In 1970 there's a million cars. There's yeah. two million cars there. Now you're absolutely dead. Right, road deaths were up around the 700 but, mark. Now that's due to a number of factors. I mean, we will all, uh, people of, uh, of, of our vintage, Harry, perhaps not, Sarah's will remember going off on holidays for, uh, uh, with, with, you know, five or six kids in the back of the car, nobody, ra- uh, nobody uh, 
wearing seatbelts. Roads were more dangerous. Cars were more dangerous. And if you crashed, you were goosed, whereas most people survive crash now. So there's a whole array of factors in that. But one of them is uh, is the social unacceptability of, uh, drink of, driving. of drink driving. But there is, I think there, there, there has to be some kind of solution found to uh, the plight of those who have used the pub as a kind of a, a, a social centre. Now, they've tried kind of transport and minibuses and this, and it hasn't worked. But they, they will have to try to, to rack their brains and come up with some kind of an alternative uh, to people driving their own cars and endangering themselves and endangering others. And that's the kind of imaginative solution that you'd expect a government to try to come up with. I mean, if you can have Uber and Halo and kind of complicated transport systems that work in urban areas. I think that I think that there, there's a people to use them in urban areas. Mm-hmm. You don't in rural areas. Well, it could be done in, in, in it mightn't be as frequent. It mightn't be as instantaneous in rural areas. But I'm surely there must be there must be systems that they can put in place that will allow people uh, to, to travel more frequently uh, in, in, in rural areas. And it hasn't been done yet. I think maybe it's something that should come from the private sector or should come from government. I don't know. But I think that, that they should start looking at alternative solutions. Uh, to allow people, uh, the people that Danny Healy Ray and others are talking about, uh, to to avail of the pub, which is a very important uh, a social centre in rural Ireland. I do think, just to go, to go back to your initial question, Pat, is whether Fine Gael are maybe sticking it to Shane Ross somewhat. And uh, you do get the sense that, or you get a, a picture of the distrust that um, exists between Shane Ross and members of Fine Gael. I mean, what I discovered yesterday from speaking to Fine Gael members, and particularly those at Cabinet, is that they see this as an, a first step and that there will be an attempt then to lower the blood alcohol limit further. So they don't take Shane Ross at his word. And also that the Cabinet agreed um, to, to ask for two different pieces of research before progressing this bill, which is a report from the Garda Commissioner Noreen O'Sullivan as to whether, um, to the enforcement of our current drink driving legislation and its effectiveness, and also that Shane Ross would do a review of rural transport schemes and how they can be improved. So I think you, you do get the sense that they're not taking Shane Ross at his word and that they're looking for you know, proof in the pudding, essentially, you know, what difference will this make? And that was agreed across Cabinet, not just by those members that are, that are expressed opposition um, to to the proposals. There, there is a sense that Shane Ross is trying to pull the wool over people's eyes and get this across the line and then take a further step to lower the blood alcohol limit That's further. That's a suspicion among Fine Gaelers. That's a suspicion amongst Fine Gaelers. And, and Harry's right. I mean, if you go to rural parts of the, of the, of the country and you see where some of the pubs are located and the you know the isolation around them for a lot of people you know that's their only sense of social inclusion when they go to the pub for one or two you know on a on a week night or even on a you know on a weekend night and you know they to, to deprive them, I suppose, of those two or three points seems somewhat cruel. I mean, we are quite lucky and privileged in the fact that if we go to a pub across the road, you know, we can halo a taxi home at any hour, you know, of the night. Whereas when rural Ireland, that's not really that's not really an issue. And I suppose that's really where we're seeing the rural urban divide come to the fore. Okay, well, much more to come, I suspect, on that particular subject uh, when we when we return in the autumn. But uh, today also sees, uh, I suppose, the first big political economic set piece of uh, of Leo Varadkar and 
uh, and Pascal Donoghue's partnership at the uh, at the Helmand government when the uh, government unveils what used to be the spring statement has uh, become in the last two years increasingly later uh, summer statement. Um, Pascal Donoghue was talking earlier about uh, the government's plans to balance the budget next year. It seems that there'll be an extra 1.5 billion for capital spending in the period between 2019 and 2021. That, Harry, is dipping into uh, uh, Michael Noonan's rainy day fund, which he announced last year. Yeah, I think um, uh, Pascal, uh, I mean, Leo, one of the things that Leo Varadkar is good at is is ideas, and he does come up with some very good ideas. His ideas tend to be uh, strong, and he tends to try to stick to them as much as possible, unless they turn out to be a disaster, like some of the uh, ideas he had during his stint as health minister. But we won't go there for the moment. Uh, during it's a whole his, other podcast, Harry. <laughs> during his leadership campaign, he was quite consistent in terms of what he wanted to do with the rainy day fund. He said he didn't agree with it, and he said he wanted to get rid of it and essentially use the, the money uh, for uh, spending uh, for capital spending, uh, particularly uh, in the three key areas um, for transport. Uh, for health and also um, for, sorry, for transport, health and um, education. And um, it was always their intention that that, that, that once he went in, uh, that the rainy day fund would be the first uh, mark, as it were. We, we, we should clarify, of course, at this mm. point, that there is not a single cent in the rainy day fund as of now. No. What it was was a commitment last year by Michael Noonan in the budget uh, to when the econ- as if the economy continues to grow and expand that the resources produced from taxation uh, would enable the government to put a billion euros a year away in uh, in a rainy day fund but that wasn't due to start until 2019 Harry? 2019 once well you talk about the books being balanced in 2018 so if the books are balanced the the, the following year there's going to be a surplus and their their calculations that are based predicated on the growth that they're predicting which is i think 3.5% and i think it's even higher for three yeah three Three quarters for next year. For next year, yeah. Um, uh, they, they, they reckon that they will have a billion euro per annum uh, to, to, that, that, for, that, that will allow them some, some, to use the technical phrase, some wiggle room. Now, um, I think that, that uh, Pascal Donoghue and Leo Varadkar would have liked to have used most of it, if not all of it, uh, for capital uh, expenditure. But uh, Fianna Fáil started crying foul last week and there was some tic-tacking between both parties. So what, we, what they've done essentially is that they've halved the difference. So of that billion euro that's available every year, it seems that half uh, will be available for the Rainy Day Fund and the other half will be spent uh, on capital projects. That's 1.5 billion over the course of uh, three years. Substantial th- but not a game-changer. No, not a game-changer. Game and actually, Cliff Taylor had a very good column uh, today in which he said that, you know, capital expenditure is good and it should be protected, but... It's it's not the be-all and the end-all. He was basically making the argument that not all capital spending uh, is is good, that you have to be very selective and very smart in terms of the projects that you chose. And he used, as an example, uh, Metro North. And I think the jury is still divided on Metro North. And he's saying that you have to be very careful before committing uh, uh, capital to, to Metro North uh, unless you're quite sure that you're not going to be throwing uh, good money after bad. But um, Pascal Donoghue, I did an interview with him at Christmas, and he made a very strong argument that that, that we really need to invest in a mass public 
transit system for Dublin. We have a capital that's growing. Uh, the demands uh, are increasing. And he said, unless there is mass suburban transport systems in place that work and work well, Dublin is going to find itself in all kinds of difficulties. It's not just a transport difficulty. That becomes a trade difficulty. It, it, it create, creates economic difficulties. And then Dublin's attractiveness as a place where people can be employed uh, becomes less in an international context. And he's made a very strong argument in relation to that. So I, I think, I mean, it, the, other th- the other thing about it is it is a mark of the new dispensation. It's a mark of Leo, it's a, it's Leo Varadkar and Pascal Donoghue saying, that this is the kind of the imprint uh, that we're going to put on this government, that this new generational change, this is the very first example of what we're going to do in, on the, in the economic sphere. Sarah, it's going to look very different today. No Andy Kenny, no Michael Noonan for so long, this, you know, Buddha-like presence at all these finance press conferences, uh, dishing out his laconic bon mot uh, uh, to, the, uh, to, to the journalists' questions. It'll look very different today. There's an obvious generational uh, generational shift um, in, in terms of the leadership. But at the same time, and all the talk of capital spending from 2019 uh, onwards won't completely conceal the fact that the budgetary numbers for next year, the amount of fiscal space, to use the dreaded phrase that people loathe, but which really only means the scope for extra spending or tax cuts, will be extremely limited, and that will present a political problem for this administration. Absolutely, it's extremely limited. And what people are not taking into consideration as well is that there will be 270 million euro which will not be there because water charges will not be enforced and the money will have to be refunded and during the leadership campaign the Shukli of Radcar said that he wanted people to be refunded their money in his first budget. So you know taking that into consideration and of course the continual promises to reduce universal social charge and to reduce the margin of tax rates. I mean, you'd wonder just where there is any wriggle room left for the government. Um, I think it's going, you know, what we will see today. I, I, I personally can't understand the fascination or the uh, with the spring economic statement. I think somebody in 2015 from the Labour side took a look over the water and looked at George Osborne and decided that we should have a spring economic statement to outline our um, our budgetary, uh, budgetary picture However, we seem to have our spring economic statement in the summer and we seem to reveal absolutely nothing new that uh, in our spring economic statement than, than we've known up until now. So you'd wonder just what exactly... In a sense, you're slightly underwhelmed. By, slightly uh, underwhelmed. And uh, had my digestive gone out this morning, you would have known that I would have was very much looking forward to playing a game of economic jargon with Pascal Donoghue this morning because the reality is like, for the general public outside of Leinster House and perhaps outside uh, the Irish Times office, the, you know, this spring economic or summer economic statement means very little. It's all about fiscal space, medium-term objectives, you know, um, budget, not budgetary plans. But the reality is, you know, it, it means very little to, to people. People, I suppose, you know, more interested in seeing how much their taxes will be reduced by. And by the looks of it, it looks and like they won't, they won't find be much. That out today. Yeah, just to, to explain to listeners, uh, both Pat and uh, <laughs> Sarah wrote a separate political digest this morning. But Pat, but who won? Pat was a little bit in. It was a little quicker. In with 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 his one, but you can actually having having, having got up a lot earlier. Yeah, than Sarah, as is, uh, my <laughs> I therefore delivered. Um, uh, the but like the spring, should also know yeah. that it was indistinct instructions from the master of the political yeah, like the spring statement. Maybe Sarah can present her digest tomorrow with a summer up. statement. Put the same one out tomorrow with one or two small amendments. I want to uh, to finish before uh, before we go with just um, a brief word from you both about uh, if this is the end of term and this is the um, the, the last significant. Act 
act, uh, political act of the parliamentary term today. What do you make of Leo Varadkar's first, what is it, 40 days, 35 days as, uh, as, as leader Harry? Um, perhaps too short to judge him, but I think it would be fair to say that we haven't seen an extraordinary uh, change uh, in terms of uh, in, te- in terms of how the leadership is being approached, no, I, I think he's resisted the 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 notional 100 days as a kind of uh, as some kind of a uh, litmus test or some kind of a weather vane for how his leadership is going. But the 100 days, the three months test, is probably a better test than the 35 or 40 days. He hasn't really had a chance to make a mark yet. We've seen indications of what he is and where he intends to go. We've seen small indications of his strengths and perhaps of his weaknesses uh, as well. Well, the Justin Trudeau uh, day showed both his strengths, but also showed his weaknesses as well. I mean, the kind of the, the extended photo shoot thing might have worked well with the younger demographic, but I mean, it did raise a couple of um, um, eyebrows that, there, that, that a lot of it was being put on for show uh, rather than being put on for dough. I, I was nonplussed by, by um, his um, interview with uh, Primetime last week in which he raised a very specific issue in relation to the Jobstown trial uh, that I would have considered to have been unwarranted. I think there were lots of other issues that he could have raised and picking out that one in isolation in my view uh, was a mistake uh, on that part and kind of brought us back to the whole kind of Leo the bystander or Leo talking from the, 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 the barstool image that people uh, have of him. I think that he has to realise that his status has changed and that if he is making observations like that uh, as of now, uh, that the observation in itself is is no longer uh, in itself the, the, the finished product. He's Taoiseach and he's the person with the power to do something about it. So if he's making observations, it's, it's up to him and the onus is on him to do something uh, about him. And perhaps uh, that didn't kind of reflect in my view uh, that he recognised fully that his status has changed and there are added responsibilities with the job. I think the the, the, the summer statement today, I think, is is a good positive indication from a political point of view, you know, that this is that there's a, a new regime in place, that we've looked at the issues and that we're going to affect change. It's not a major change, but it's a signal of, of, of changes and of more changes that we see in the future. But I think that if anyone is to make an assessment of Leo Varadkar, I think you should really wait perhaps until, uh, until Christmas time, uh, at the very least, before people start making definitive statements one way or the other. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it is very early to, say, to tell. And I, if I'm speaking to those close to him, they would say that, you know, that this is what he wanted as steady as she goes. And post the summer recess, we'll get a better uh, insight into Leo Varadkar but I do agree with Harry in terms of that primetime interview I think it had all the trademarks of, of, of Varadkar and everything that people were concerned about when he got to the highest office in the land that he is sometimes a commentator um, on issues and doesn't necessarily um you know, experience the gravitas of his office. He did a lot in health. It's one of the criticisms of him during his tenure in the Department of Health is that he often commented on issues, but, you know, and told us everything that was wrong, but did little to act. Now he's in the highest office of the land and it's not, it's not, um, it's not appropriate for him to make such commentary without following it up with decisive action. Isn't this the political challenge for him, though, to maintain the strengths that got him to the office while at the same time changing to reflect his new role. 
Yeah, I think he faces a significant challenge in that everybody who is a fan of Leo Varadkar saw him as this outspoken, courageous, decisive leader. Not really a politician. Not really a politician and, you know, said what he thought and acted on the back of that. As he's now in the position that he is, they expect him to follow up that decisiveness with action rather than words. And I think, you know, it's very very early to say whether, you know, that 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 will be the case or whether he will he will uh, fall into the same trap that he fell into the department of health time will will only tell but i do think you know having observed him over the past number uh, of weeks as he shook and watching him in particular during leaders questions is that i suppose what i thought when Varadkar was to take over as leader of Finnegale was that we would see a different way in approaching Parliament and a different way in approaching questions that were asked of him. And, you know, he he's just, he, he does the exact same thing as Enda Kenny, but he's just a lot younger and a lot more fresh-faced than the former Taoiseach. So I think, you know, he, he will run into difficulties if he continues to be as underwhelming as he has been up until this point. But as I said, it's very it's, it's very hard to, uh, to to make a concrete judgment as of now. Well, let me book you both in for the uh, special 100 Days of Leo Varadkar podcast, which will take place perhaps mid-September, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, This is the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast, and thank you for listening.